Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the Rough Trade Book Club on Soho Radio. Um, I'm your host, Matthew Clayton, and I have with me, as ever, the poet Will Burns. You there, Will? Hi, Matthew. Yeah, here. Yeah, live and direct from... Wendover, Buckinghamshire. <laughs> and with you, you have um, Nina Hervey, normally known as the Queen of Rough Trade Books. Nina, are you, how are things for you today? They're all good. Thank you very much, Matthew. How about you? Yeah, um, yeah, very good indeed, actually. Um, the kids are back at school, so there's a sort of peace in the house for the first time in six months, which is, um, which is very nice. Um, so I'm kind of working downstairs in the living room. My wife's upstairs, and we sort of meet occasionally um, on the stairs at some point during the day. Uh, and that's really <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, for the next couple of hours, we'll be talking about books and talking about poetry, and we're going to be playing some music. We always have a theme, and this theme, our theme for this month is sport. Um, and to kind of lead us in that in that direction, we have with us um, all the way from Berlin, Musa Kwanga, who is an author and um, is going to put us by, into shame with his professional podcasting kit that he has. <laughs> he also is um, well known as a football podcaster. Um, so, Musa, if at any point you feel like interrupting, giving us pointers. Or suggestions on how we could improve the show, please just do that. <laughs> no, 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 I'll do none of that. I'll do none of that. I'll just, uh, I'm along for the ride, but thank you for having me. Okay, well, let's start with some music. Um, so, we're going to have uh, to start with, we're going to have the unofficial World Cup theme by Colourbox. <laughs> Idea. Um, so they were they became half of Mars that had um, oh really with Arcane half of our band Arcane and half of Colorbox came together and created pump up the volume then yeah pump up the volume exactly um, the the Colorbox that 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 song is in fact one of my twelve year old son's favorite tunes um, he's absolutely obsessed with it plays it constantly. But it's that thing of like you don't want your children just to like the music you like, and it's a kind of weird thing for him to like. So I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that he'll put it behind him and move on to maybe some more interesting stuff. You say that, but it's a great foundation. Like I grew up, my my aunt had this amazing Bang and Olufsen sound system, and she played Prince to me, Sign of the Times, and that's oh, right. the first thing I ever really remember listening to. And that that was like my foundation for the rest of my kind of taste in music. And it's been it was like an incredible primer. That's well, yeah, that's a good I yeah. think my my primer was um, uh, working in a coal mine, the Lee Dorsey album. My parents were quite old. Oh, <laughs> that, was, 
the sort of most popular music that they had was uh, was Lee Dorsey. Um, what um, about well, and Nina? What about yours? What's your foundation uh, album? I thought you were you were about to say that your 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 musical primer was just working in a coal mine, <laughs> and it was only when you added the, the Lee Dorsey bit that I that I, that, that I, I was sort of rescued from this vision of you in the Sussex hills mining mining for coal. Um, well, I was ridiculously sort of lu- lucky, lucky and unlucky, I, I suppose, in that my parents were 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 so sort of musical and 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 young and um you know so I never really managed to escape this this sense that my dad particularly always had better music taste than me you know my, my it was my dad that got me into things like the Wu-Tang Clan um and hip-hop and and uh you know it was it was through my dad's record collection I discovered almost everything that I still love now and um so I never really had to I never really had that that moment of kind of rebellion um and listening to music that 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 my parents didn't get or anything like that um so yeah never i've never 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 escaped that shadow what about your mum so what did she listen to my mum i think there's a lot of um so there's a guy the grandmaster franco who was like the superstar of like sukkus in africa the sukkus movement and taboule as well so lots of like West Africa and sort of Congolese guitar music. Um, the kind of stuff that you hear at weddings at about like 11 p.m. when everyone stopped playing all the Western music and like everyone dances from the age of like eight to 80. Right. So I had that kind of mix of like incredible guitar music. So it's so weird to see like Afrobeats taking off now because I'm like, wow, like this is, <laughs> they got there in the end, like 40 years later with that kind yeah. of guitar sound. Yeah. What about you, Nina? Down in the Channel Islands, what was what was your what were you listening to? Um, my I guess my first memories were like Motown music, which was played by my auntie. We would go out in her car every Saturday. We'd drive into town, and she'd be playing some kind of Motown hit, greatest hits type thing, and Marvin Gaye. And I remember being a little bit obsessed with the Onion song, um, with Tammy Wynette. <laughs> yeah, because it's just. The world is a great big onion. I was just fascinated with that idea. And do you still believe that the world is a great big onion? Yeah, yeah, yeah it makes me cry all the time. <laughs> 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 um, okay, well, let's um, talk about uh, something you did last year, Nina, which is maybe it's two years ago now. When did Kirk's it is two years out? ago. So I'm going to shine a light on Kirk Lake's um, pamphlet, which is called The Last Night of the Leamington Liquor. And it came out as part of the first 12 pamphlets that we did in 2018. Um, And it's all about um, the boxer Randy Turpin. It's kind of a a fictionalised account of his final night. Um, And the history of Randy Turpin, he was... He was a boxer who um, beat Sugar Ray Robinson. He defeated Sugar Ray Robinson um, and he won the middleweight championships. But he was only the champion for 64 days before Sugar Ray defeated him in in a rematch. Um, But it's it's really quite a sad story because he was never able to regain his title and he kind of faded into poverty, which led to his suicide. And so Kirk 
wrote a fictionalized account of um of his last night um and it's quite sad but it's a very it's a very good short story isn't it is he, yes, from, yeah. is he from leamington he is from leamington yeah um he and so is kirk actually i think that's why he's that's why he was kind of fascinated by randy turpin i think there may be a statue in in leamington um of randy turpin as well but um yeah there was like lots of issues with money he i mean no, no nothing is really clear about it it's kind of you know he he won this money and he he gave it to the boxing promoter to look after and then he never got it back and you know it's just it's just a bit of a grim story and then he ended up working in a kind of um transport cafe i think he was running a transport cafe and he was just he owed just loads of people owed loads of people money and yeah it's kind of a, it's a bit of a sad story but um kirk is kirk is really great and he like i say he's from leamington too and he is also an actor he was he played the archivist in um the nick cave film Twenty Thousand days on earth and he yeah. also played the journalist in um that film uh in the dali and the cooper about salvador dali and Alice Cooper meeting, which sounds bonkers. <laughs> that sounds unlikely. But I was going to play um, a song from the playlist that um, Kirk did for us. He called it Kirk Blake's uh, Blues for Fighters, and it's all kind of like boxing songs. But um, Sugar Ray Robinson track is on there, uh, and it's called I Should Have Been On My Merry Way. So I thought we'd play that. Okay, well, let's listen to that now. So this is Sugar Ray Robinson. Um, there is a bit of a tradition of boxers making records, isn't there? Um, and this is I Should Have Been On My Merry Way. Array. Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray Robinson. Yeah? I know you're the champ. But have you ever been knocked out? Oh, yeah. By who? By you. You see, the last thing I remember was you kissed me, and then uh, I had to take the full cup Okay, um, that was uh, one of Kurt Lake's chosen pieces of music. Did he do a whole playlist then, Nina, for his Yeah, you can, if you go to the Rough Trade Book Spotify um, page, you can listen to the whole the whole playlist on there it's called blues for fighters um, lots well, of gems. well you're going to know this then what's the sort of history of boxing and literature well I, I, it, it's funny you should uh, you mention that because we we were supposed to be joined by another guest who would have who would have elucidated much better than than, than i could um the poet declan ryan who's um who's um uh, knowledgeable on 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 both fronts, um, I, I suppose it goes all the way back to uh, you know the sort of the the, the big beasts of um, American writing last century Hemingway and and those 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 um, those people that made that that well Hemingway particularly that made kind of um, especially those rather macho um, and uh, overtly physical um sporting activities um he made them part of his sort of uh myth 
kitty, I suppose, bullfighting particularly, but but boxing as well and and big game fishing. Um, but the, but yeah, there's I I mean I I've spoken to Deck at, at length about why he chooses boxing as a as a subject for his poetry, and I think um, he wouldn't mind me maybe paraphrasing him um, when he he he's he's discussed ideas about um, boxing being you know a space where you, you, you know irony is is a is a is a is a is a is a, is a lost cause really you know um, you train for a year of your life and um, you know you you go in the ring and both for both people you, your life is at your life is at stake and there's no there's no easy get out clause of you know I well I didn't mean it anyway or you know um yeah. it, 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 it was you know it was ironic or it was a joke or it was a pose um you know it, it, it's it's life at its most kind of um intensely um meaningful and um you know w- w- with 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 a with the greatest sense of jeopardy and I think for a poet like Deck, um, Declan, uh, that that's always been a that's always been an attractive idea because, you know, it's that kind of intensely felt life that 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 could that could also perhaps generate the most intensely felt literature. Yeah, Russell, did you ever watch the boxing when you were growing up? I was obsessed with it for a long time. Um, Nigel Ben. Um, Obviously, the old. Re- I used to watch a lot of the Olympic stuff. I loved that because the Olympic boxing felt a bit safer. They had the head guards, so used to watch a lot of the Cuban boxers who came through. They had an incredible kind of school. I think I was always attracted to the kind of the physical, not so much the danger, but the physical excellence around boxing and the fact that you had to train for like eighteen months for a single fight, and the fact there was some, especially the Olympic level, there was so much respect between the fighters, and frankly, no one ever seemed to die or end up severely incapacitated so yeah I really I used to love the boxing did you watch it when you were a teenager uh yeah uh, but there's of course a point when you get to about sort of 20 and then you just can't follow all the sport so cricket ice hockey boxing they had to drop off tennis had to drop off as well so I had to sort of just stick to football but yeah like boxing was I was never drawn to the the brutality of it I got to say I was never drawn to the kind of Jake LaMotta tragic flawed shattered masculinity I, that never was a thing for me. I was just more into the technique of it. What about you, Will? Did you watch boxing? Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember um, watching it um, in, in those kind of sport-filled Saturday afternoons, um, and um, and then l- later, uh, you know, the beginning of the sort of Sky and the pay-per-view stuff. I mean, what if I, I lost a. Uh, best friend when we were um doing our a levels i i didn't lose him that awful phrase um he died and um uh one of the la- one of my last memories of of spending time with him socially was st- was we were allowed to stay up late at another friend's house and they'd got the um lennox lewis holyfield the first lennox lewis holyfield fight on their pay-per-view and um the, and we we stayed up and watched it and and um, yes, yeah, so, so some of those big um, kind of marquee heavyweight fights are, are, are ingrained in in part of my understanding of sport, my interest in sport, moving from 
you know, young teenage life and just sort of, which, which, which in a way for me was much more always about playing sport um, and then into that kind of adult, adult life of following sport and of it being something that you could discuss and and um you know uh and strategize and and if it basically be, it becoming as much of a cultural part of your life as a um as a sort of active um yeah. part part of your life so yeah i do like musa says you know you, these things go, go in and out as you don't necessarily have the time to keep up and different things seem to appear at different at different times um, and I'm much, I mean, I will, I'll read, I'll read about boxing now, but I, it, you know, it would be, um, it would be happenstantial for me to, 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 to watch it. You know, I'd have to be with certain people at a certain time and it, in it for, for me to kind of watch a big fight now. And has anyone read any of the books by Jonathan Rendell, the observer, old observer writer? Oh, sadly not. No, I haven't. Yeah. Declan's a big um a big fan of of of, of Rendell actually and uh, he w- w- it's a shame that he couldn't make it on because you could you'd have had a good chat about um about them he's he's recommended a, a couple to me funnily enough he, the one the one that Deck really recommended highly was the one uh it's, I think it's called this this bloody mary is the last thing i own yeah, um, yeah. which isn't actually a boxing one is it that's about gambling i think no, well, it's sort of it's sort of a memoir, but he um, he leaves college and becomes a kind of boxing promoter, right? Um, and this Bloody Mary's the last thing I know, and sort of tells a bit of that story as well. Uh, it's really a great title. Um, as is Twelve Grand, which is about him being given twelve grand and him spending it, <laughs> basically gambling, yeah, losing it all. Uh, right, that's one I was thinking of actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was the sort of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, a friend of mine, actually, um, a friend of mine uh, Cal, in Brighton, was so inspired by The Gambler, which was this this series and this book where Jonathan Reynolds gets 12 grand, that he did the same with his doll check once. Right, <laughs> and he, right. And he made a short film about him getting his doll check and gambling it all away over the course of the next Oh, my God. Year. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've never seen it. I remember, Cal, I remember Cal making it, but I never actually saw the... So the film, but Jonathan Rendell's wonderful, but he is slightly in that um, Norman Mailer, uh, Ernest Hemingway tradition of like, he lives a very tragic life. He has a very unhappy time and eventually, I think he, I'm not sure if he kills himself. He died, he died young. Um, yeah. In 2013, I think. Um, but a real talent and just interesting that boxing is one of those sports that, and it's certainly not true of all sports, but have attracted um literary writers um mm. not just kind of journalism let's listen to another um boxer now so this was going to be Declan's pick which is Joe Frazier uh, and it's a song called um if you go stay gone <laughs> Joe Frazier. So Joe Frazier was uh, American boxer. That's literally all I know about him. Can anyone <laughs> the gaps? Uh, so Muhammad Ali didn't he fight those three epic fights against him? Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah, and he won them. He won two one, but at an astonishing cost. I think he won them at fifteen rounds, at an astonishing cost to his own physique. Um, yeah, so he won the fight. He won the the series of fights 
well, no, he won. He won the war, but he lost the physical war. If that right. makes sense, yeah. Did you yeah. box there at all? Was boxing? Did I box? Yeah, was boxing a sport? Uh, so let me think. Um, I didn't box. Martial arts were quite big at school. Karate was really big in particular. I don't think boxing was. I think it was regarded as slightly too unsafe. Um, mm. You know, I was at boarding school, private school, so it offered pretty much every sport under the sun. So I think the omission of boxing was quite striking. And I think it was a generational thing. Because at one point, in fact, our our debating trophy at school was the old boxing cup. Really? So I think a few, de- yeah, a few decades before, I, which is quite a nice irony and symbolism, I guess. Um, <laughs> but a few decades before I arrived at school, they got rid of the boxing, I think, because it was just too dangerous. Right. Um, okay, let's move on a little bit. So let's talk now about, Will, what, um, from, from boxing to uh, cricket. So what have um, you chosen, Will, for, to, to discuss in, in your fantastic poetry corner this month? Well, a particularly, a particularly um, uh, satisfying um, personal one uh, this this month, and it would have been again neat with if if Declan Ryan had been on because the poets um, that we're going to talk about today, um, Zafar Kuniel, it was uh, part of the Faber New Poets um, series that um, Declan and I um, were, were were part of as well. Um, so I've known Zafar's work for um a few years now um and uh when when we when we all first sort of met and became um friends and uh sort of co um co-published uh pamphleteers or whatever the the word might be um zaf and i had a few quite quite a few um conversations about um cricket because uh zaffa is very keen on cricket and then um i think it was last year might have been the year before now though um he published a short pamphlet um of cricket poems uh with faber um i think it's i think it was called six and it was six poems they were part of um some work he did when he was uh poet in residence at the oval during the cricket season um uh and yeah they're, they're, they're it's a great great little um great little set of poems uh, and so I was going to read one of those. Great. So which one have you chosen to read? Uh, it's called The Opener. So, uh, yeah, The Opener. Was out early and I came in for my first innings at number three, Gower's number. And my batting had shadows of his lazy grace, studied on the square telly and echoed in our framed oval mirror. Only I was right-handed, so I was proud in two directions, at going in and at being out, off the thinnest of edges like Gower, a butterfly whisper, after a couple of elegant air shots, wafting my bat, playing a perhapser away from the body, out in limbo, in the corridor of uncertainty, then darting a look behind, the ball thrown like confetti to the heavens, half in celebration, half in appeal, which is where I pause the action head turning west to east, ears half hearing the word out, slowed down, mid-stop, like a deer's voice sounds, mouth open, caught, a gaping field, some foreign corner of my eye, clocking the far finger raised to the sky, and pointing out different ways in the moment's stopped air, my black curly hair, almost like my master's. So, um... 
What's he trying to do there then, Will? It's a sort of moment in time poem, I guess, isn't it? it yeah, it, it is. And I think, um, uh, well, firstly, I, I, I will have to apologise to um, Zafar for um, for not reading uh, one of his poems nearly as, as beautifully as, as he does. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, I think I think um, perhaps this is something that that you know it goes back to that conversation we were having about why certain sports attract uh, writing um, and cricket, particularly. I, I you know I think um, presents the, these 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 solidified moments in time um, in a way that um, sports that that. Uh, that have a have a more natural flow and and that potentially therefore have a have a you know a, a different kind of um, space time uh, aesthetic appeal um, that that can't necessarily create that that, that, that can't necessarily um, present those moments to to the writer um, or the or the or, or the or the or the reader then of of the writing um, and I think cricket's perfect for that you know it's a series of moments really. Um, and it's an individual game dressed up in the accoutrements of a team game. Um, and so, um, you know, individual games tend to, you know, one-on-one -on -one moments tend to produce um, those, those kind of di distillations of emotion and, um, and, and action. Um, but one of the things that I love about Zaf's poetry in general, and, and I think this poem is a, a, a great example of it, is that he... Um, he revels in uncertainty and in, um, you know, the space and uh, the kind of um, slippery uh, meaning that that that, that occupy um, the the intellectual space between things. So you know, with with Zafar, it can be uh, linguistic or cultural. Um, it can be periods of history. Uh, it can be between places, um, you know, his own mixed heritage, um, and in lots of his poems, he he's 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 brilliant with um, the way multiple languages have, have have influenced his his modes of thought. Um, you know, he's a, he's a sort of language obsessive, as I suppose all great poets should be, um, and so he's constantly sort of pulling language apart and seeing how um, all the different kind of cultural and historical and uh and linguistic influences that have played a part in his life have, have, are, are, are both mirrored and created by by language and you know i think um there's loads of examples of that here so the title is the opener but of course the opener's already out and 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 the the speaker's going in at number three which is a kind of not quite an opener not quite the middle order so there's there's already this sort of limbo which is a word then used later out in limbo, the corridor of uncertainty, um, and then even the even the, the moment that's described, the, the, an edge behind, um, isn't quite a. It, that's not quite a shot, you know. The ball has not the, the ball's not been hit, um, but it has obviously been been uh, connected with uh, just faintly enough to to dismiss the batsman. So I suppose um, this all it's all negative capability really, um, and and. And locates the poem in that in a kind of romantic tradition through that. What do you mean by negative capability? That's the idea Keats expressed, and I, th I think in a letter originally, um, 
uh, and uh, it was how Keats felt the best writers could pursue. I think Shakespeare was his 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 kind of emblematic example. They could pursue um, a sort of aesthetic beauty, um, even in uh, moments of intellectual confusion, or um, you know, or, or they could even actively pursue an intellectual confusion. Um, you know, a kind of um, in between. Uh, in in between positions of of of, of certainty, um, and yet retain a kind of a, 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 a beautiful thought or a beautiful sense or or a, um, you know it, it, even an, an aesthetic sort of power. Um, in it, so it's it's suggesting that 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 there's a strength in write, writing of that kind that 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 is in opposition to say. Um, you know rhetoric and you know the power of persuasive argument so you might you might think you might think now that you know it's what makes a poem like this um so powerful as opposed to say something like a you know a, an advertising slogan which says everything that 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 it means to say it says it definitively um and so carries one message and one message only and doesn't allow for any kind of um flux or or flex in the in the reader's thought um whereas a, a poet like zaffar is you know trying to um uh you, you, trying actively to to present us with a you know complex set of 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 ideas and 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 their opposites within within one sentence or or phrase it's, it's such a beautiful poem can i just say it's beautiful i just want to say i thought you read it beautifully and that phrase a butterfly whisper is just gorgeous. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I also yeah. like, I like the use of the word perhaps, sir. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think also it's, it strikes me as it's sort of the opposite. It's the opposite of Ernest Hemingway in that it is non-heroic. <laughs> it's not about someone winning the game. It's about someone getting out. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, the, the, I, I think that's that's a that's, it's per, it, it, it's so perfect for cricket which is which is so defined by its by its failures you know even when someone scores 100 you know very much likely to have got out eventually and um you know so there's that kind of i mean it's an easy statement to make but there's a kind of um you know metaphor for life uh thing going on um in in, in cricket and gower you know at that time was was a was was i, I think it, it, it would be a perfect phrase to say that he was a kind of un-Hemingway-like figure because, you know, he it wasn't sort of brawn and, and daring do. It was it was very much, um, you know, an, an aesthete um, game that he had and um, which which is why he was such a cult figure. You know, people thought he batted. Th th those were the sorts of phrase people used. He's, he batted beautifully. You know, he was elegant. Um, you know, it was it, it was very much the, the, that kind of language that described his batting rather than you know um a kind of pugilistic yeah he, um, wasn't, he wasn't beefy both he was a sort of no both him, wasn't he? he was slender had kind of uh, and slightly languid um player mm. when uh when i was about 11 cricket for me was really represented a sense of freedom it was the first place i went on my own away from my family was to go and watch the cricket uh, when i was like 10 or 11 I used to go down to hove to watch sussex play and i remember once um Leicestershire were playing and David Gower was playing. When David Gower was out, he's walking back to the pavilion 
And my friend Joe walked up to him with <laughs> with some orange juice and said, uh, "David, would you like a drink of Would you like a drink of my orange?" And David Gadsden looked at him and said, "No." <laughs> but uh, <laughs> for, the next, for the next ten years, we would constantly um, take the piss out of Joe for this. Like, David, would you like some orange? Um, oh, it's adorable. <laughs> it lived for a long time. He fancied something a bit stronger, did he? I don't know. I just think he was like, you're like some 10-year-old kid. I don't want your manky orange <laughs> But it probably wasn't with orange juice. It would have been orange, some grim orange squash Kia Aura or something. Um, although, wonderfully, my friend Joe's also... Uh, um, my favourite ever sporting moment was a moment where he um, he ended up on the on the sports pages of the Daily Telegraph and a game that Sussex were playing, and they were doing incredibly badly. In fact, both of them was playing. It must have been against Somerset. And Sussex were down to something like 60 for eight. And before the next batsman came out, Joe ran onto the green um, with his bat and went and <laughs> and went as if he would be good enough to be the next Sussex batsman. And, <laughs> and both of them and I bowled him a ball. He ran to he ran up to the crease and he bowled him an underarm ball that Joe then hit. There was a kind of massive crowd and then the stewards started piling on and, and Joe sort of tore off back to the stands. Um, <laughs> there was a photograph of him in Wisdom that year of him doing this kind of fantastic thing. And it all happened because he, he, he said to his dad, will you give me £10 if I run onto the pitch the next time the bats come out? And his dad, foolishly, not thinking he'd do it, said yes. <laughs> That's, oh my God. that's great. So, that 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 reminds me actually of um, and Musa will as a as a Man United fan perhaps remember the guy's name. That he there was he the 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 bloke who ran who who secreted himself into the Man United Champions League team photo. Oh, I don't remember the name of the guy that did it, but I know I know the photo. Yeah, right on the end at the last minute, it was wild. I, yeah. I know I know I know the event exactly. And he did. Um, I think he did a cricket one as well. Like a, you know. A, he he basically that was his kind of his he was photo he was photo bombing before social media yeah 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 and he had all the kits and everything so he would just sort of <laughs> up there next to Roy Keane <laughs> <laughs> so just bring it, bring it back to um to Zaffer again so what else has he written then has he written other stuff what did he write when he was a uh, Fabi um, new poet yeah so he so he had um he had a new poet pamphlet which was his first. Uh, publication. Then he had his first book came out um, with Faber uh, called Us in 2018, I think, M- might be 2017, um, uh, which was uh, nominated for the T.S. Eliot Prize, uh, shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize, shortlisted for the Costa. Um, a brilliant book. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, and, and, it, and I recommend as much as you can get your your hands-on of um, Zafar's work, yeah. Okay, great. So let's um, let's finish this little segment up by listening to um, Booker T and the MGs, the classic. Um, what which is it? It's not Test Test Match Special, is it? Test Match Special. This is the theme for Will. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's famous for its kind of what is it? Is it cowbell? Is it a wooden block? Little do 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 do. What's it? Yeah, I don't, I've never. I've never actually looked into the the mechanics of what what makes the what makes the music actually. Um, well, it was it was it, it, is it just a keyboard sound? Mm, I don't know. I th- I thought it was like a wood block or something. But anyway, we can listen to it now and we can work that out. Mm. 
Okay, so here it is, um, Soul Limbo by Booker T. Andrews. Okay, so that was um, Soul Limbo, Booker T. Andrews. We're going to move over now to Musa. Um, I want to start by asking you, Musa, a little bit about football. Um, yeah. And in your one of your three books that's coming out next year. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, the one that you're doing with Unbound. Yeah. Um, there is quite a lot about you playing football and the sort of sense of identity you got from being good at it. It yeah. played quite a large role in your the formation of you, I suppose, as a teenager. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so my grandfather, shout out to Julio Peter Abbe, passed away in 1996. He was actually the president of Ugandan FA, Football Association, yeah. um, and coached the national team for a few years, actually, back in the day. So football's always been part of our family. Um, and I guess I just kind of inherited that obsession from him. And I don't know, I just think there's so many things about football. Um, you know, you look at, like I was actually a huge cricket fan, which is why I loved that poem that that we just heard. Um, I suppose the thing I love about football is the repeated opportunities for, for like, for team glory. Okay. Like, yeah, it's the knowledge that at any point you can make a group of your teammates deliriously happy. Um, that's exciting. And it's the thrill of having that responsibility as well, because I played as a striker. When did, and when, and did you, couple, yeah. when did you realise that you were good at sport or it was something you enjoyed, or you know, particularly football or cricket? How old were you? God, that's, that's such a weird question, because you don't really... Um, you're right, you don't really know... And there's a, there's a point when, you know, because when you're playing sport, there's a kind of moment when I think I was at a school called Marish Middle School. Marish is basically in the Thames Valley. It's in, in a town called Langley. And we play in the playground on this kind of like tarmac surface with these rock and roll footballs. They were actually like more like handballs, but you played incredibly bouncy. And I was playing on that tarmac surface and there was a guy called Mark Haylock who could basically, his shot was so powerful, he could knock over a bin that was full of rubbish from like 30 yards right. at the age of like 11, 12. So there was a lot of like really good footballers in that group. And Mark was like the year above me. And one, I think it was a one afternoon, I, I must have scored like several goals in one of the kind of large goals. And after that, everyone was like, that guy can really dribble, that guy can really play. And that was it really, that kind of coming coming of age when it's sort of, in the playground, people look at you a bit differently. And I, in terms of how good I was, I mean, I was—I would say that I was—I was a very good amateur footballer. I could never have been a pro. Right. I could have maybe have been a semi-pro, semi-professional, a stretch. But I was happy with my level. Like I was good enough at football to to really enjoy to really enjoy it for as long as I played. Because there's a, there's a moment in one of them where you get kind of pushed down to the second eleven. Yeah, yeah. Which and sounds- it was um. Traumatic, yeah. Well, because when I was, um, sorry, carry on. No, it's, it's just it's a very traumatic episode. Could you want to explain what happened? Well, yeah. So I'm um, I went to this prep school when I was like 11 years old, right? And the way it works in the English private school class system is that in order to go to like a secondary school, you have to go and learn Latin and Greek and all the rest of it. And I went to this preparatory school, and I'd never studied Latin or Greek, so I was bottom of every class. And the only things that kept me going were my ability at English and my um, sort of English literature and my ability in the football pitch. 
and I basically had a headmaster who was quite old school who how do I put this delicately I don't think he liked people from he didn't like exuberant characters and for various reasons he identified me as an exuberant character and I scored several goals in my first few games for the first 11 and so he basically dropped me publicly he humiliated me by at the beginning of football training he took away my green jersey in the middle of training sorry he took away my green first 11 jersey and gave me a red one in front of everyone and he dropped me from the first team even though I was their top scorer and it was like it was designed to humiliate me and I was told afterwards it's because you think you're too good and it was absolutely devastating it was a calculated act of cruelty actually um so yeah how, how did you was, react to that it was funny because I scored in the next game I remember the goal I remember all of it like it was you know it's like a dvd in my head and I played really well for the rest of the season in the second 11 never had any ego no attitude no problem and they were like what are you doing in this team and I'm like look you guys are good guys it's good football let's just do it and the second, the year, the next year, I was kind of a judge to have learned my lesson, even though I hadn't really changed fundamentally how I played or who I played with. And I was promoted to the first team again, and that was that. But it was absolutely devastating. And I remember thinking to myself, this is really a responsible guardianship because at that point, I had nothing else going for me but my English literature and my football. And he took my football away which is actually an act of cruelty. And this was the same time I was being bullied really badly. I was bullied by um, a very wealthy boy um, who came from a family that was quite, in quotes, distinguished, not by me my measure, but by English society's measure. A guy from a distinguished family in the UK, and um, I was really badly bullied by him. And this was all going on, and this boy wasn't punished. So I was like, what, what outcome are you trying to engineer here because it's not one that's very favorable to me and we should rewind at that point so the book's called one of them and it's coming out next year but it starts well it doesn't start but it has the sort of one of the turning points in the book is you going on a is it a school trip to Eton you go on that's right going on a school trip to Eton uh at the age of like I was 11 and a half years old and I was at a local school in Langley, shout out to Langley Manor School. Uh, and I was there and we got taken on a day trip. And I, I see this school, we go, to, we go to Eton for a day trip and I was just blown away by the kind of, the majesty of it. It was like a a giant museum, only people actually studied there. Like, you know when you go to like one of these, these like huge heritage sites, but then there are people going in and out and it's like really busy and I was just really intrigued by it. So I go home and tell my mum, I, I think I want to go to school there. And then there was a documentary on Channel 4 called Class of 91 around the same time by complete chance. And I said to my mum, like, I really want to go there. And she was like, but you've got a place at grammar school. You could go to Langley Grammar. And I said, well, and I was due to go there within the next two months because I had a place there already. haven't done my 11 plus, 12 plus, sorry. But I was like, I want, I want to go to Eton. So I got my forms, did my application, got like a... 50% scholarship like a bursary right. and that was it yeah it's such an extraordinary thing for uh, <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing for someone so young to have as an aspiration I think um, yeah it's weird and a lot of people go oh you didn't choose it and I'm like no I did I did choose it like yeah. it wasn't like my mum was like you got it my mum was like what are you doing like you've got a place at grammar school go there instead and where do you think that came from what what, what was 
like the romance of the place that you saw, did you equate that with other things? What or was it just so different to what you'd seen? What was the, what what do you think caused that spark of like seeing this one um, thinking I want to go there? Have you ever been I mean you're a musician, right? Do you play much music yourself or I do, yeah. I don't know if you play much. Right. So you know when you go into a venue before anyone's in there, you're sound checking. Yeah. And you stand on the stage and you look to the back of the empty auditorium, however big it is. And I've played, I'm a musician as well. I, I play gigs now and again. The biggest crowd I ever played in front of was like maybe like 2,000, 2,500. And you're standing there before the auditorium fills up and you're just looking to the back of the hall. Then you look up to the kind of rafters and you think, yeah, yeah, like we could do something tonight. It was like that. It was like walking into a space and being like, I could do something here. And that was just in me, you know? It yeah. was just in me from the earliest age. So you then decide you're going you're gonna to have to really study. So you start really devoting yourself to study. And yeah, yeah. also that kind of um, thing you see with lots of people from a BAME background of saying, like, it's, I'm going to have to study twice as hard as everyone else to make sure that I can succeed. Yeah, that's exactly how it was. And, you know, um, look, here's the thing. I, I was one of the top students in Berkshire when I went to this preparatory school called Sunningdale School. Then all of a sudden I was bottom of every class because I'd just never, I'd never studied um, Latin before or Greek or French. I literally had never. So at the end of that first term, I was bottom of every class. I, got, I think I got, here's an example of how bad I was at history. I thought that the 14th century was the 1400s. So I wrote about entirely the wrong century and I got 14% out of sympathy. They were like, you argued it really well, but you just didn't know which century you were talking about because no one had ever told me that. So in two years, I had to go from zero knowledge in Latin and Greek to doing Latin in the Eton Scholarship Examination, which is still the hardest examination I have ever done in my life relative to the age I was at. Like it was astonishingly difficult, the Eton Scholarship exam. Like it was wild how hard it was. Um, so yeah, I was working all the time. I was studying all the time just to get myself to a level. And I remember talking to a friend about this who I was at Eton with as well. And he said, Musa, it's crazy because I was put down for Eton at birth and all I had to do was scrape through. And I saw you working alongside me and you overtook me in class and you went to Eton. You worked so much harder than I did just to get the same opportunity that I got just by being born. Yeah, it's quite an interesting metaphor for society in general, I think. I think also it sets up a conflict later on in your life, doesn't it? Where essentially you've worked incredibly hard for this thing. Yeah. Succeeded at getting there. But actually sort of society's view of that place is that it's for entitled people who um, haven't earned it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can't earn it. You can't. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not possible to to earn what that school gives you. And it's amazing. The education was incredible, but it's just not possible to earn it. Like, how can you, right? How can you? Yeah. Um, and that's something, you know, at the age of 11 and a half, you just look at this incredible education, you know how revered it is. And you're like, I want to go there. But then when you realize the system of admission is not entirely, you know, it's this whole thing about, oh, this guy from this background goes, look, it's not possible for someone like me to go to Eton now. It was barely possible then. My mum afforded it because she was basically worked her absolute, you know, she worked her hardest. But 
there's a lot of parents that work their hardest who've got smart kids who can't go to places like that. Mm. And also even the concept of separating kids, streaming kids like that, I'm not so keen on that either, to be honest, because, you know, doing your 12 plus, as I did in Langley, if you don't pass your 12 plus and go to local comprehensive, your entire life is different, right? Like your entire life. That to me doesn't seem fair. Did you, did you, have, did you have brothers and sisters? Uh, yeah, actually, you can come in as well. Sorry, someone else was going to come in. Yeah, um, I was just going to yeah. ask about, um, go back to the, the 12 plus idea. Uh, yeah. Because we, we've got it here where 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 I was brought up as well. And mm. I've just been thinking about it a, a lot recently. And it, 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 it struck me in my memory as having this kind of profound effect, like the day after you get your results, you know, all, all of a sudden the kind of, the, the ground had shifted under everyone's yeah and yeah. all of a sudden friendships were kind of relit because one one like you know these two kids might have been best friends their whole life and one passed and one failed and all of a sudden the next day they were kind of thrown into this doubt and and I wondered if you experienced that where you were that it kind of defined everything for well almost for like the rest of people's lives this one test they took when they were 12 or 11. It's horrifying it's so unfair there was a school called Langley Wood round the corner from Langley Grammar. And if you got, I think, I think the pass mark for the 12 plus was 114. And if you got like 112, you're entitled to appeal on the basis of your good character. And then you can go to grammar school. If you didn't pass your 12 plus, you went to Langley Wood, which was basically a collection of people who weren't good at exams or for various reasons, struggled in school, weren't interested in school. And it basically just streamed them off. And there was this, and I'll never forget the astonishing stigma attached to going to Langley Wood, like, oh, he goes to Langley Wood, she goes to Langley Wood, from the age of 11 and a half for the rest mm. of your life. That is colossally unfair. Yeah. That is, nobody deserves that, especially in our country with our class system in the UK, right? Because you come to Germany and they don't have the whole Oxford and Cambridge thing. Like, this is the thing. They've got a load of universities that are really, really good and you get to go to a really good university and you move forward in your life. And that's not to say Germany does not have social issues. Of course it does. It's to say that that issue is one that it does not have. And I think it's a vastly better society for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's have stop this chat for a second. And let's have, that sounds just like Alan Partridge. Uh, let's have uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the chat is, um, uh, has chosen, which is um, Ben White. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Ben White. Wow, got the pronunciation. Nailed it. Yep, yep. And a song called Bad Soul. Give me some time. Oh, one more try. Um, so that is uh, it's quite an introspective song. Is that reflecting yeah. your sort of taste in music, Mutter? Well, no, it's really, partly, it, it's really, I selected songs that had helped me get through Berlin at various points, navigate the city. And Ben is someone who I heard busking. He's amazing. He's an amazing musician. And I heard him and knew him before I, before I knew, I got to know Ben like a year after I knew him as a, bus, a busker. And he'd come out of the underground station in Berlin and you'd see people invariably dancing in a circle before you saw Ben and then at the center of this crowd he'd be playing his own music and blowing people away and I'm like this guy is unbelievable and like you know I came through as a poet I came through the Berlin so the, the London spoken word scene in like 05, 06, 07 
So that was the same time as like Ed Sheeran, K Tempest, Scroobius Pip. And I was like, Ben would have absolutely stood out even in this scene. He would have stood out in London at its peak, like the whole One Taste movement. He would have been part of that. And so Barricade for me was a song that is my favorite song of his. And I just, the amount of times I've sort of wandered along listening to it. Um, so I had to include it today. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great track. Well, going back to kind of sport and you as a teenager, when did yeah. you start? When did you start kind of writing about sport or thinking that you could write about sport? Oh my goodness! Um, so I, I wrote my first book in two thousand and seven. That's my first sort of long form sports writing. It was a football book called A Culture Deaf Foot. But I suppose writing about it came late. But and I want to talk about passion for a second, only because that poem about cricket, like cricket occupied such a special place in my life. When I was at prep school, I started playing and I came to bat at number four. And so when you come to bat at number four, you're often rescuing a team, right? Because the team is basically struggling. So I came in in one game and we had been unbeaten that season for the second 11 cricket, which was as high as my level could have gone. I wasn't any better than the second 11 cricketer. And I remember batting for an hour and a half and scoring seven not out in order to stop the the team losing. Yeah, I came in. We were naught for two when I came in, chasing 138 to win, which we we're never going to get. And I'll never forget that stumps came when the game stopped. It was six, we were 64 for eight, and I was seven not out. And this is one of the proudest moments of my entire sporting career, and it's not even football related, because it's doing something for your teammates. And one thing I want to sort of pick up on as well, I know you mentioned that Hemingway didn't really deal with failure. That's right. I think Hemingway was also at his best when he dealt with failure. Right. Does that make sense? So when Hemingway just kind of took the gloves off, I'm thinking um, the short, happy life of Francis Macomba, obviously. I'm thinking of his short story, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. And uh, of course, The Old Man in the Sea. When Hemingway dealt with failure and grace, graceful failure was Hemingway's absolute best, I think, even though he didn't always examine it. And I think the reason I love cricket so much is because cricket is all about graceful failure. Every innings you die, you know? Yeah. Uh, Pretty much. You sacrifice. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think cricket and the sport and cricket in particular taught me a lot about failure and sacrifice, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's interesting. The, um, the stories we remember as well. So the story I remember from playing, um, schoolboy cricket was my friend Lewis being the captain and he was a very good batsman, but he was the world's worst bowler. I mean, really, really (laughs) terrible. <laughs> when the ball left his arm, it would fly. It could fly anywhere. It normally would fly about twenty foot in the in the air. But what would always happen in a game was there would be you'd have two batsmen that are doing incredibly well. None of our bowlers can get them out, and Lewis would always put himself on for an over, and they'd hit him for four for the first three balls, and he'd always get them out on the fourth fifth ball, um, just <laughs> uh, just because they suddenly would let their guard down uh, and. Um, uh, and I always remember that with me being kind of life lesson is actually doing the weird thing or the strange thing that isn't expected, that isn't the way that other people do it, um, can often reap rewards. But that's absolutely my uh, looking at that situation and moulding it to my own way of seeing the world, I guess. Um, but there's a whole thing, it's called, is it obliquity? When right. you pursue an end by indirect means, I think it's called. Yeah. yeah. But like, that's kind of, I mean... I think that's how I kind of have retrofitted my career. I can sort of say, yeah, that's what I did. But the truth is actually my my career path, my choices have been resiliently 
non-commercial in the sense that what that means is I've always pursued passion first and not thought, how can I market this? And the weird thing is now, of course, I'm finally at a point in my life and my career where it's like I've got projects that are accessible. I, I think it's because I pushed so far in the direction of creativity and originality that I finally end up in a place where people are like, oh, we can understand this guy clearly. We like what he has to say. Let's pay him some attention, which where is kind you, of gratifying. Yeah, yeah. So I carry on. Where carry do you on. think that came from? Where do you think that desire to do something unique and creative came from? I think it's family. Um, if I look at my my family, we've kind of always gone against the grain in relation to being politically outspoken, maybe. Um I think it came from all the reading I used to do as as a kid, like, and the toys I was given to play with when I was a child, like my mum and she would give me and my siblings, um, she'd give us toys that required you to work things out. So we'd never get just like dolls or stuffed toys. We had those, but we also had like Lego and Transformers. You always were given toys where you had to like work something out, right? So the toy was presented to you, but not in its final form. And when you're given toys that are kind of, tools or puzzles from an early age your brain is constantly looking for solutions i think that's where a lot of it came from and also like i mentioned prince like i grew up listening to complex music like you're listening to prince you're listening to uh minnie ripperton you're listening to marvin gay right diana ross i'm still waiting all that melancholy all that longing so you grow up with a very deep sense of complexity and soul and yearning and i think that all fed into you know my life, my personality, who I've become. Did you, when you when you left university, did you become a lawyer for a short while, or did you study law? What did, there was a sort of a path you took that you then changed. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I studied law in the first place because I knew this is going to sound brutal, but look, I'm a black dude, right? So I was not expecting to be taken seriously in the job market unless I had the best qualification from the best university. Whatever I went on to do, I was like. I'm a black guy in the UK. If I don't, if I get a law degree from Oxford or Cambridge or UCL, King's College and wherever I can get my law degree, LSE, if I get a law degree from a top 20 university, then whether I go to look for a house, whether I go to look for a job, any career, I'll be taken seriously. So the job actually, sorry, the, the thinking was always to leave the law. It wasn't like I suddenly woke up one morning and was like, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I was like, I studied a law degree at university knowing that I wanted to study English, but sacrificing my English degree because I was thinking, if I'm a black guy applying to Oxford and don't get in for English, where do I end up? I go to like, I don't know, Edinburgh or um, York. And all of a sudden, a black guy that does English at York with his CV in the job market is not as impressive as a black guy who does law at York. Like law was a respected degree. So basically, to be honest with you, racism basically shaped my career choices. Right. Because I knew that if I quit my career as a lawyer, which I was always going to do, even if I was a poet earning very little money in London, a performance poet, I would always be like an Oxford Law graduate. And people would always think twice before dismissing me. And that was an incredibly you know, forward-thinking choice. And it's one that's actually kind of insulated me in many ways. It's protected me. And how did you fall into the kind of spoken word scene in the 90s? Oh, wow. Okay. Actually, I start, I'm a, <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> no. So I started in, no, no, it's fine. I started in 2000. <laughs> I started in 2005, actually. Right. 
um, I was living in, no, it's fine. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's cool. So I was living in Croydon in 2005, shout out to Grenaby Avenue, just off the uh, Sydenham Road. And I would go to the Poetry Cafe, uh, shout out to Niall O'Sullivan, um, who ran the night there. I think he still does it every Monday night at 6 p.m. And I turn up with five minutes of poetry. Um, you get five minute slots. If you turn up early enough before seven, you've got to write your name down. And I, I'd written a rhyming novel based on a modern version of Othello set at Eton College. So instead of being a victorious general, Othello is like a rugby player. And I basically did this kind of rise and fall of Othello where he's a rugby player and his girlfriend is like from a local school in Ascot and he dates her. And then Iago, who he plays rugby with, is jealous. So Iago sabotages the relationship, injures Othello so he can't play rugby anymore. And Othello ends up basically like depressed out of the team. And so I, I was reading extracts from this sort of political satire based around the time of the Iraq war. And I would go and read different pages of it. And everyone would be like, this is wild. Like, who is this guy? Who is this guy who comes down in a suit, like reciting this poetry? And then when I left my job as a lawyer, I kept going to the cafe while I was temping, I ended up temping at the home office for like eight quid an hour in Croydon. And I would read out more and more new stuff. And then weirdly enough, like my name just got out there and all of a sudden started getting these bookings from like, like Sweden to go and perform stuff and then I did one I did one gig in Sweden in I think 2008 it was a climate change conference in a place called Talberg which is four hours north of Stockholm okay. and there were like almost 500 people in the crowd there were like scientists from NASA the king of Sweden bishops whatever I did a poem called the creep about climate change and I finished the poem and it got like a two-minute standing ovation and my entire life changed yeah, my entire life changed. That was it, really. So you decided you liked that and you wanted to do more of it? Yeah, but I was always... Look, I've been written, writing poems since I was 10 years old. I was writing poems before I was writing short stories. Like Poetry was my first love, my first art form. And I would have written it even if I'd always been broke doing it. And yeah. it's funny because when I first started writing poetry about sport in particular, I got a lot of hate from a lot of like knuckle-dragging men. Um of all backgrounds, all walks of life, they were like, why are you subjugating poetry? Why are you subjugating sport and football? Like poetry is not for working class people. I'm like, what? You're obviously not working class writing me that. You're obviously some like posh dude posing as like a working class dude because poetry is as working class as it gets. And now I get asked to do poetry about football, which is a wild turnaround. What was the, what was, was there a moment when you decided to stop being a lawyer then? Yeah. I was living in, so this is when I was still in Croydon. Right. I remember lying on my bed. It was a Sunday afternoon. I remember thinking, I just can't do this anymore. I can't combine poetry and and my love. I can't combine law, my poet, my love of poetry. I can't combine them. I can't do both. I can't devote time to both. So law's got to go. And I lay on my back and I stared at the ceiling. I thought, are you really going to do this? And I drafted my letter of resignation and sent it that afternoon went in on Monday morning and the, the partners were looking at me in shock. They were like, have we upset this guy? I was like, no, 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 I've just got to, I've got to leave. I've got to do my thing. Um, and that was it. I went from earning <laughs> what, like 40 something thousand a year down to earning nothing. And then earned, I think 11,000 a year for the next couple of years. But I was really happy. I was as happy as I'd ever been. Okay. Let's, that's a good moment to have another track. So let's have, um, your second choice, which is, this sounds a bit like Desert Island Disc. Um. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so this is a, a, this is kind of preparation for when we do that in a few years' time. So this is a <laughs> planning. Um, you should go mad. It's not the way you hold me. It's not your look or the things you say. Just the way your mind works. It's dragging you down. So is that a song that also has um, Berlin associations or not? Uh, yeah, very much so. So A.S. Fanning is one of the sort of leading lights of the Berlin singer-songwriter scene. And his stuff is normally a bit more down-tempo, but he's kind of a, like a sort of J.J. Kale, or he's like a songwriter's songwriter, if that makes sense. Like, he's the person, if you go to like Nashville, you'll be like, oh, who do people that come to Nashville listen to? They'll be like, go to that bar at 7 p.m. and he'd be playing there. Right. Um, so yeah, that's why I just love, I had to include him in that because, um, he really is like symptomatic as the kind of like the artist who comes abroad to make a living and really do something exciting. So you've got three books coming out next year. You've got a book with Ian Wright. Um, you've got the book with Unbound, which is one of them, which is a sort of Eton, it's an Eton memoir, I guess, or it's a, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Adolescent memoir. Eton. Yeah. Eton memoir, private school memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And then then the third one is this novella with Rough Trade Books called In the End It Was All About Love, which is about your time in Berlin. So when did you move to Berlin? In 2014, October 2014, yeah. And and what was the reason why you moved there? Um, looking back, I think it was, I, I say there were, I always say there were four reasons why I came here. Um, to see my friends in the in the morning, um, no, sorry, to do my work in the morning, to see my friends in the evening, to fall in love and to stay in love. But I basically just came here to kind of just disappear, I guess. Right. Um, to live a sort of quiet, peaceful life, which I've not really succeeded in doing. But yeah, that was the plan. And was it a sort of, were you living in London before that? I was living in London, but I've been traveling a lot with work the week before, the, the year before I left Berlin. And each time I returned to London, whether I touched down on the plane or came back on the Eurostar, I was like, it was like the end of a relationship. Where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not so happy anymore here. Right. I'm not in love anymore. And I was covering the World Cup in Brazil in 2014 um, for a couple of different outlets. And I was having dinner with a friend and he said, why are you still in, why are you still in the UK? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you're too international in your outlook for a country like that. I was like, what do you mean too international? He said, well, London is international, but the UK is insular. And I don't think you should be there. How about leaving? And I was like, I've thought of leaving maybe Stockholm or Amsterdam because I'd worked there and enjoyed it. And he said, how about Berlin? And I'd done German for my A-level um, because I thought one day I might need German because it's a business language. Maybe I could live in the heart of Europe. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. I speak German. Berlin's right there. Just go for it. And that was it. Within a month and a half of that conversation, I had a flat here. Wow. And so um, in the end, it was all about love. Is It's divided into three sections, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So the first section is called uh, Righteous Immigrants. Yeah. Um, and that deals with what, your arrival there or? Yeah, arrival in um, Berlin and just the kind of the, the newness of it and 
you know, there's a kind of, there is something brave, I think, for anyone that goes to a new city where you're going there and you're determined to, to make it work. And you're kind of wide-eyed, maybe a little bit innocent in a good way, and you're ready just to take the whole city in. Um, and I did that against the backdrop of, of course, Berlin's history of being a sanctuary for many people, but also it's a place that has condemned many people. So in that part, I tried to capture both both sides of that experience. And then, in, and then in the second section, you talk about starting to have therapy when you were forty. Um, yeah, a brave thing to write about, I think. Well, thank you. I mean, look, I mean, therapy is a bit like for the, those who write, they may see some parallels with therapy because when you start writing as when you start therapy you're trying to work out you're trying to work something out right if that makes yeah. sense you're trying to get from a to b i started going to therapy not because anything was dramatically wrong but a little bit like you know when you get like mot on a car you get the mot before everything's completely run down so you're like you know what get a bit of maintenance and i thought let me just go and do some emotional maintenance because there was one thing in my life a key issue that i hadn't resolved which is that i was basically at that point a few years from growing older than my father for the first time. My father was killed in a war when he was just short of his 41st birthday. And I was struck by a sense that I had not achieved enough with my life, given all that I'd been given, and given that my father himself had died at the age of sort of 40. So I was so aware of my own mortality, and I thought, I need to go and talk to someone about that. And it's funny that we should talk now, because this weekend, I became older than my father for the first time. I'm now... Yeah, I'm now four days older than he ever was. And I started going to therapy because I was afraid of what I'd feel like when I reached this point. And thanks to therapy, I passed that age and I was totally calm when it happened. And his story's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because he, they, him and your mother flee Uganda, they come to the UK, but then he goes back to fight. Is that right? That's right. And almost, if you, if you look at like Syria now and the refugees leaving now like almost nobody goes back who does that yeah like they're very few a very small percentage of people that leave because of a war return to it and you would advise almost anyone against it he did it because he was like look if we don't do it then who will right and i mean you might argue it was right to do that you might also argue um maybe less charitably that that conflict was the momentum of that conflict was already so sharply in one direction that it, it, it could not necessarily have been won. Yeah. Um, and it, he made, you know, I guess the ultimate sacrifice, if that makes sense. Yeah. But he, and, and he also left a family behind in the UK who were going to struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And that, this has a huge, I think people don't talk enough about what revolutions cost. A lot of people talk about armed struggle and the need to rise up. And I always think to myself, you might not be talking like that if you'd lost people because the impact of that, the impact of losing someone in such traumatic circumstances, like, you know, the first memory of my father was, is his coffin in the living room. Like that, that is such an awareness of your own mortality. I don't know where to start with that. And People that talk about revolution, violence, and war, they need to be conscious of what it costs, what it takes. Yeah. Well, that's a good moment to play. Um, that is also another Desert Islandist trope, uh, <laughs> to play <laughs> E. Meyer's song, I Am Alive, um, which seems to fit quite perfectly with that. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now. Okay, that was E. Myers. I don't know who E. Myers is. Who's E. Myers? Well, no one really knows. That's the thing. It's just sort of like, has a show, I think, on NTS and a kind of like underground electronic music. Um, came out a couple of years ago with a new project. And just that tune is really sort of amazing, life affirming. And it's where I am at this point in my life. It's, right. um, I feel like for the first time, my life is truly my own because right. there's no established precedent for who I should be or how I should be. Right. And that song is just like, it has real bombast. It has real swagger. It takes its time. It's old school, but it's also new. So yeah, I thought that's kind of who I am and where I am right now. So if, if people don't, um, uh, can't wait until next year, they can listen to your podcast, um, Stadia. Stadio, Stadio. Stadio. Yeah. Yeah. Which comes out, how, how often does that come out? It's twice a week, every Monday night and every Thursday night it comes out. And it's basically kind of a roundup of football. Um, we cover the men's game and the women's game with an emphasis on the European game. Uh, but we really discuss football and it's all its beauty, all its squalor on and off the field. And what, and have you started writing anything else for 2022? <laughs> I have, but I can't talk about it. Only because I don't want to jinx it, but I'm always I'm always working on new stuff, right? And I'm really excited about the things I've got under development. Um, and this is not me being like weird or or elusive. It's just there. But what I will say is, if there if if you do want to see what I'm working on, the fragments what I'm working on, my Instagram it's just my surname out Okwonga. I posted some kind of little bits of it, scraps of it, which is as much as I put out. But yeah, there's there's new stuff on there. If you and do you still do any performance at all? I do. Um, so I still make a bit of electronic music. I've got a project called BBXO. Um, we do stuff. Um, we perform in Hamburg. We perform in Berlin. I also perform poetry at different nights now and again. I actually did an online reading. I've done a couple of online readings, readings during the kind of uh, the pandemic lockdown. So yeah, I keep my hand in there because I think when you perform, it's a way to like discover the material afresh and to work stuff out. And frankly, it's also like, it's just fun, right? Yeah. It's fun. So yeah, yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, I think we've we've run um, we've run to the end of the program now. Um, thanks, Will. Thanks, Nina. Most of that was brilliant. Really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you. Um, oh, likewise. Real pleasure. I- I'm sure Will and Nina are thinking exactly the same. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Musa. And um, you know, it's been uh, great to hear more about about the um, about everything that's sort of built up to the books. I think um, you know it's going to be exciting to 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 read them all next year and obviously oh, i'm i'm, I'm really excited can i just say this like for the record i'm super excited about when, when we made the announcement i don't know if i told you this but when i made the announcement about the book coming out the ton the amount of people that got in touch who were like rough trade like that's a big look because that's people who that brings in a lot of people that wouldn't normally check out a project like this because of the name and the resonance of it I got a message from like, um, is it IK7, Big Berlin Record Label, who were like, whoa, this sounds brilliant. Like, so it has this like really already, I mean, I mean, just the response to social media has this kind of incredible kind of like cross-cultural appeal already. 
Well, I think the books the books got such scope. You know, we we started this episode talking about sport, and obviously you, you mentioned, uh, you know, in 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 that book about playing football and the camaraderie in the in the team. You talk about music. You talk about obviously the the city itself, its history, its present problems, and um and and kind of and its genius. So I think um you know it, it, the it's the book itself which has got such sort of broad um broad appeal. So we're glad to do our bit to help spread the word. Oh no, it's a bit. It's, honestly, it's like one of my. I'm looking forward to, I can't, exi- I mean, I've said this maybe a load of times to Nina in particular, but I just can't believe it's going to be out in the world on a platform like from a publisher where people, where the maximum number of eyes will read it. Because my one fear would be either it didn't get published or if it did get published, it would be one of a slate of like 20 titles and just not get like visibility. It would just be kind of, oh, look, here's a Berlin book. Instead of being like, here's a thing that you need to like, take your time with um and return to yeah so yeah like i'm just I'm, I'm i can't describe how happy i'm about that honestly <laughs> well we'll have to get you back on nearer the time to talk about it again thank you so much and no, it's been an absolute joy thank you so much okay lovely so that was the rough trade books club um for another month it wouldn't be the rough trades book club if i didn't have the opportunity to play some music featuring slap bass so we're going to go out with um johnny harris track odyssey Thanks, everyone. See you next month. Cheers, Matthew. Cheers. See you. Thank you.